0: I'm Peaton. This is the Rhizomatic Reader Podcast. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Alan Thomas about Elizabeth Strout's novel, Olive Again. You can find the shorter, edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. They are definitely using the microphone. I definitely can hear you perfect
1: and I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. and I'm glad this has been this this has been something quite a journey Paul. I
0: know. I know. I am so excited. It's really finally happening and um,
1: I listened to your first episode. I listened to the pilot and then I listened to your first episode yesterday. And with, what are uh, your thoughts? Uh, Kay- with oh, I really like I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. I it was a book I would never probably get near and it was like, Oh, that's kind of fun. I didn't have to invest in reading it, but I learned some something about, and one of your, about, about the book and about one of your friends. and Exactly. And, and I, it helped me to have a sense of, okay, this isn't a performance. I'm just going to sit and talk to Paul, just relax. And
0: Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not meant to be stressful. It's really meant to be just like we're talking about this book We're talking about reading and I will edit. Uh, I will spend a lot of time editing away.
1: Well, that's what I was, I didn't read your, your unedited version of the first one. I thought, I just got such a sense of appreciation for what you're doing because so much of it is technical and editing and creative and editing. You know, it's like a combination of really tedious technical probably and some, some interesting creative bursts of, do I include this? Do I include this? I loved your music in between pieces too.
0: Oh, good. Okay. Because it I,
1: gave me, a, it sort of gave my myself a little bit of a breather in between the, the intensity. So you've done a nice job on that.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to do about every nine to 11 minutes, give people a little break, 15 seconds or so, except that one at the end. But this is where the editing stuff comes in. It's kind of complicated. To, I'm trying to keep it to like about 50 minutes max the edited uh-huh. version and So yeah, when you're trying to cut stuff But sometimes you can't cut things exactly the way that you want them to so you really got to think about how to make it work and I'm learning. I have learned so much about editing Just so kind of,
1: what software are you using for the editing?
0: I'm using uh, just GarageBand, which is just really? like a, Mac, a Mac product, yeah. and you yeah. know I'm yeah. just learning how to do cut audio files and build sound in, and uh, you oh, know wow. it's been quite a process, but I've I learned a lot, so it's it's pretty awesome, and I'm really glad you're here, and I'm Hold really on, glad you're part good. of the part of the uh, the inquiry that I'm trying to do here.
1: I love it because I'm learning a lot. So you, the, One of the, my observations, Paul, is that this does, this removes, how do I say it? This solves some of my frustration with book, group, book discussion groups. In what because way? This, because in a book discussion group, I'm always sort of dancing like a boxer, you know, like, am I gonna jump in or am I gonna not jump in? And I gotta watch to see if Susie over there needs to talk and, I, I could just go kind of hold that thought and, um, and this is just one on one. It's so much nicer. I just it's, think it's a it is it's nice. a different it's a different medium and it's in it and it's just uh, so much less of the frustration of being in a book group with so many people and so many dynamics going on. That's what I'm trying to say.
0: I, I agree. Yeah. Um, though I love book groups, and we will continue to do those things but hopefully we'll be able to just have a really robust conversation about this book. You decided to have us co-read together, um, which is probably not a book I would have gone near. So I look forward to talking about that in a little bit, but I really want to start with, with hearing more about your reading life and how you begin thinking about the history of that. You sent me this, lovely document that you've put together. I don't know if this forced you to think about this or how you even kept track of all this, but yeah, just talk to me about your reading. Well,
1: well, first of all, I'm, I over-prepare for just about everything I do, especially if I'm going to have to do it verbally because I'm not a verbal processor. I'm a listening processor. So I thought, my reading life, my goodness. And so what I did was I went through. I downloaded all of my books from Goodreads and into a spreadsheet, and I started putting them into categories. And then I also did it by dates. And I was very surprised to see that I've read close to eight hundred books in my life because I reconstructed most of my, you know, older older readings. And it's surprising to see that in the last seven years of re- in these seven years of retirement. That, almost, that was 60% of my reading for my entire life. That was really surprising. 500 books in retirement. Right. In seven years. So it's about, you know, more than 70 a year. Yeah.
0: Now, how did you, because you recreated this 50 years before retirement, 300 books that you say you've read. How did you even, like, did you keep a record of that or how did you determine... Or add to your Goodreads
1: account that these were the 300 books that I had read prior to retirement. I used Goodreads as a tool to help me to refl- my, my with my memory, and then I would remember books. So i sort of go at like by author, and then by time periods in my life. It was. It probably took me two to three years before I felt like I'd had the bulk of my before Goodreads. the reconstruction done it took quite a while -hmm. and I didn't feel any stress to do it. I thought, you know, eventually they'll, most of these will come to me.
0: So, you know, when did you even like, what are your memories of reading even, you know, pre-retirement? Like I want to, I'm, I'm curious about people's reading stories. You, you marked that by the way in the, in the first pilot episode on the SoundCloud, you said you made a comment or something about, interesting to think about people's reading stories mm-hmm. what what they think about their reading history
1: to me reading was my brother and i often talk about this my brother who's five years older than i we often talk about how reading saved our lives mm-hmm. because we lived in a dying rust belt city um, it was a city it, we talk about the conspiracy of silence that so people didn't talk about things in general, let alone difficult things or exciting or fun things. They just didn't talk, it was just boring. Um, And so reading was a way to get out of that. It was almost like like somebody smothering, like a wet cloth on your mouth trying to breathe.
0: Living where you grew up.
1: Yes, and so reading was a way out of that. And I remember the first time my mother took me to the library and I walked around, and I must have been really quite a little kid, and I said, and I walked out of there and said to myself, "I'm going to read every book in that building." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was the beginning. That's how it happened. Started. My mother was a very avid reader too.
0: She, she read was. So you grew up in a house where that was kind of commonplace.
1: Well, I, actually, it was her escape. Um, so she didn't really she didn't talk much about it. But we saw books around, and she was always always had her her nose in a book.
0: And it it was that, uh, so you're reading from a young age, you and your brother, um, this sort of carried with you through your whole adult life or you took a break? What happened exactly?
1: Well, one of the big things that happened was, one thing happened was when I was a senior in high school, I didn't have a very good education to speak of and I didn't work very hard, but I got into senior English. And we read Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we had to write a paper on it. And my teacher gave it back to me, and said, well, I read the book. I don't want to hear what the book says. I want to hear what you thought of this book. Oh yeah. Okay. And that, that just changed my life completely.
0: What was like, how did, how do you feel like that changed your <laughs> life? That's like a before it was and like, after. It's like,
1: wow, one. what I think about this book is worthy of even considering. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, so talking about books didn't become just about plot reconstruction or whatever, which is kind of typically how you learn to talk about books growing up. It became about something more. Right.
1: And then when, when I, uh, there are several things, but when I went to, when I did graduate work in linguistics, I became very interested in the whole idea of analyzing literature from a structural standpoint. And I think we'll talk a little bit about this if if you don't want to talk about the structure of, of Olive again and Olive Kiddridge itself. So, um I'm I'm intrigued at how a writer puts structures this uh a book. Um, when I was reading just for for interesting things I like to read. I read a lot of Pat Conroy, The Prince of Tides, Beach Music. And I was intrigued by the way he put his stories together. His, he, was, he wrote beautiful prose, and he wrote psychologically deep, had psychologically deep insights. But I just really was fascinated how that was done. And I came up with this series, which I am still pretty feel strongly about. I felt like he was a good writer, but I have a hunch that his editor, Nan Talese, was the one who pulled it all together and put it into a structure that worked.
0: What makes you think that about Pat Conroy?
1: Pat, well, because that's I, his name, I read, read enough Yes. Yeah. Because I read enough of his work and I read enough about him. I thought, yeah, he writes good sentences and he puts good he writes good paragraphs, but I'm not sure he knows how to weave it all together. And I really thought somebody else was sort of the the puppeteer behind it, making it as gorgeous as it was and pulling it all together interesting
0: hmm i haven't read pat conroy although i have a pat conroy book that i've had on my shelf for years that i've never read i don't remember which one it is but i know that i have it because my friend katherine in college i feel like she told me to read pat conroy because at the in college i was really into um john irving have you read
1: john irving uh you know i still don't have not read any of his so i have A Prayer for Owen Meany? A Prayer for Owen Meany, yeah. It's on my shelf too. That's one of the things I want to do before I, it's on my bucket list to get done. So.
0: It's it's a great book. It's a really excellent book. Um, But I had read much of John Irving's, many of John Irving's books when I was in college. So you have a master's in linguistics. How did you fall into that? What was your undergrad degree in? I know I should know this, but I don't.
1: Undergrad was Russian language and literature with a, Mm. with a heavy emphasis on international living in a residential college at a large um, university. What made you interested in Russian literature? It's just one of those crazy things. I, um, I, I was so excited to get into Michigan state university. And there was this experimental college that was one year old, and and it was residential living, and it was focused on international living. And one of the requirements was, by the end of your first year, you had to have t- two-year proficiency in a language, college-level proficiency. Mm-hmm. And I saw the list, and I thought I studied three years of French in high school, but I was really quite bored with it. And uh, I thought Russian. Hmm. And Russia was in the news at the time in the cold war. And I thought, Oh, why not? So I ended up taking two years of Russian in one year. It was compressed into one year. Right. And uh, that's how I got, got into Russian.
0: So then Russian literature, interest in Russian literature followed or you had to take Russian literature classes in college?
1: Uh, after the, after the first year, which was two years of Russian, then we were all of our work was working with literature reading literature, reading and writing papers in Russian, which was a joke because one can't write a very good paper with that level of proficiency in the language. But Mm -hmm. it, uh, yeah, I guess that was the beginning of my literary analysis because that's what he expected of us.
0: That and Thomas Hardy. Yes. So then, so then linguistics, you got into linguistics in graduate school. Was that at Michigan state also?
1: No, oh, that was at University of Texas at Arlington, and I got into linguistics because I was making a career choice, and I was getting involved with a Bible translation organization, and had to have have these classes in linguistics to actually go out and do field work, and I specialized in literacy, and also that's where I got my interest in the linguistic discipline called discourse analysis or in plain English a narrative analysis. How how is how is a narrative structured? And one of the papers I had to write was I did a a discourse analysis of the three bears written in Russian. Mm. So I was able to take the Russian text and then describe how the author in Russian had put together the the structure of the story.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you're really interested in structure, well, I'm glad because I really want to know <laughs> something about the structure of this book when we get to it because I think it's it's structured in a different way than other books so this um you've put a lot of information on this sheet you sent me about your you know your reading life. Are there particular moments in here that you really want to point out talk about?
1: Yes, I think that in retirement uh, was when I really felt like I had the time to dig into some of the multi volume books that I'd already always wanted to read. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of the big books. Uh, I reread War and Peace in a new translation by Pavir and Volkonski. And it was like reading a completely different book than I read it 20 years before. I read uh, Doctor Zhivago in English. These are both in English. Doctor Zhivago again, with English translation by the same translators. Um, and I looked. I started looking at some some series, some big books like Proust, which I, by the way, just recently finally finished. Which you finished the seven, whole the whole seven, thing, right? Seven volumes, one point four million words, three thousand plus pages. What made you um,
0: interested in reading that?
1: Well, I've had I've had a lot of interest in France. I've traveled to France several times. Spent some, not just visits, but you know, like I spent a month there at one time. I spent a couple of weeks there, so I've always felt like I I have some insights into the French culture and and I oh and the reason I got interested in doing it was through Brazos Bookstore. They we read this book called The Hair with the Amber I H A R E the Hair with the amber Eye, and the writer who wrote this um, was a, really enamored with Proust, and he sort of got me intrigued about it. Well, maybe I should read Proust, and if you go out to YouTube, you can see this guy, and he'll tell you why everybody should read Proust, and he reads it sort of like people read the Bible, you know, every day he reads some Proust, and he mm. just reads it over and over again.
0: So you've been doing this reading in retirement, but I know that you have also developed some reading habits that don't involve actually physically having the books. You do a lot of audio listening. Is that, is that true or not? Not
1: true. Absolutely. Um, I'd say about, I actually have, I read about 40% of what I do is audio only. Mm Mm-hmm. Another ten to fifteen percent is audio plus the book, so visual and audio. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I, one of the reasons I do it is because there's so many books to read, and I can um, I listen to books before be- before I go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And some books are easier to read listening to them versus not like if it's a really complicated book or a complicated story, then it's a little more difficult to just listen to in that way.
0: Proust. Did you listen to Proust or you read Proust? Both. Okay. So you were doing At the...
1: varying degrees. Sometimes I would just listen to it. Sometimes I would listen to it and read it in hard paper, but I do have all seven of the books and I did usually. I'd say fifty percent of the time I had the paper in front of me and fifty percent not.
0: Now when you're listening to a book, do you do you just stay seated or you're laying in bed and that's all you're doing? Or are you able to kind of I mean not multitask, but you know, are you doing multiple things at the same time, perhaps? What do you maybe no, it depends I'm, on the book?
1: I'm very I very much don't do anything at all. Mm-hmm. I'm usually horizontal. Um, and the process I have is if I have paper, I have these page points, these little things you put on your, to, to mark the place. Cause I don't want to stop and underline, but I don't want to lose that important thing that I wanted to remember later. Mm-hmm. So I put page points on and then if I, then when I'm done with the book, I take the page points out and un- underline the highlights that I wanted to remember and think about it again. It's a time for that whole process is a time of reflecting on the book again, going through it again and um, something that takes some discipline because not, it feels sort of like homework, but it it has its value and, it, and it's satisfying for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You also have on this paper that
0: you sent me the, these kind of like, it looks like you sort of have buckets mm. of things that you're interested in reading about has that shifted over your life when we've talked about this, but I'm, I'm I'm interested in how you decide what you're reading, how you decide what you're ditching. (laughs) Right. we talked about ditching before you and I, so. Mm
1: -hmm. And I, and that's something, that's something I continue to play with and, and continues to change. But I think it's, as I have less and less time, on the clock, so to speak, in my life. I feel I have to, I want to be more selective. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing more ditching, putting things aside. Um, and I also like to have a varied diet. I don't want to eat the same kind of food all the time. Like, I like reading fiction. I love reading stories, but there's also, uh, I like reading stories about real people. So I like reading fiction, but I also reading like reading stories about people human beings and i think at brazos is where i really got into memoirs read mary Carr's the liars club and uh, actually took a memoir class at imprint houston um and started to do some of my own short pieces on memoir writing and i an example as i just finished reading samantha powers memoir called the education of an idealist and it filled me with such it was really good for my spirit because these difficult times we live in i was able to say you know she had re- she was in the midst of just horrible things rwanda sudan uh so darfur and sudan and uh being in the obama white house as uh, ambassador to the un and i thought she's still at it she's still fighting so it it's been giving me a lot of hope in these times when diplomacy is is being demolished and, and uh, you know the State Department's being gutted. So so I, I want to keep I use that sort of a balancing act to not get depressed and sad about the state of the world.
0: hmm So memoirs help you do that.
1: Right. And I've always had an interest in the whole area of geopolitics and diplomacy because I've lived internationally. I've lived in a, two de- in a developing country, and I lived in the former Soviet Union, and I've always been intrigued about the countries and their histories, and not histories like I learned history in school, but histories in terms of their culture and uh, how they live their lives. For example, I was intrigued living with Russians for a couple of years, that they are so Asian in their outlook, and yet they're very much not they would be very upset if they heard me say that because they do not consider themselves as Asians because they aspire to be Europeans. Mm-hmm. But but the Asian component of their cultures and their customs is just striking. Mm-hmm. So I'm continually intrigued by that. And recently I've picked up two new books about uh, that have been focusing on geography and geopolitics. One is called Prisoners... Of geography, and the second one is called "Revenge of Geography." And for the first time in one of these books, I was able to finally understand the whole Pakistan, Afghanistan, Western India Mm. area, and realizing that all those borders are just flimsy and poorly executed border borders that were built by people who didn't even live in that area. And it was like, I finally understand what's going on in the stan, in Pakistan, and, and, and Central Asia as well. And did the same thing for the Middle East. I thought I w- I gave up on understanding the Middle East. I thought it's just too complicated, it's too messy. And but once he he, he drew the what's going on geographically, it was a sort of a key to a door to understanding this. So mm-hmm. I'm continually cur- curious about cultures and, um, conflicts and history. Yeah. And I, and I have a new, a new friend who I met, it was a neighbor and now he's living back in his home in India. And he's a, a he's a historian. He's a academic, but he's also now chairman of the board of a major internet dash telecoms company in India. So he got an interesting combination of rural development plus bringing bringing technology to rural people. But anyway, he he brings together brings to me. We have these conversations about history of India and the history of colonialism and post colonialism and imperialism. And I've had always had quite an interest in in India because I my first big book set was the. Was called the Raj Quor- is called the Raj Quartet by Paul Scott, mm-hmm. and it was made into a, a mini series called The Jewel and the Crown, which was shown here on PBS. And uh, so he and I have had a lot of discussions about postcolonialism, racism, caste, class. Um, he gives me a lot of insights about the present uh, leadership. President Modi and uh, Prime Minister Modi in India. So I, you know, it's just such a rich life to, you know, have somebody who is on the front lines of this and who love loves to talk about this. So he's been building. So this is creating a new space for me of the of the this whole India post-colonial cultural and culture and imperialism thing. So that's an example of how I fall down a rabbit hole and it becomes great fun and very enriching to just dig in and learn more, read more, think about it.
0: Now, I'm I'm curious when you're going down in in this case like the rabbit hole of trying to understand let's say the geographic region of India Pakistan. Uh-huh. Um you're reading histories, you're reading geography, geopolitics.
1: And fiction. In that okay, area. that was because what I was going to
0: ask. Are you also? Do you also find that reading fiction helps you to understand something about those parts of the world?
1: Absolutely. I I, do, I don't like to just read it without. I I need the fiction. Mm-hmm. Paul Scott was fiction. The Raj Quartet was fiction. That's what got me started. Okay. And uh, and my friend has given me a couple of fiction writers who I'm looking into, and one of them very interesting was George Orwell
0: oh right this is burmese days
1: right yes he he, well he said have you read george orwell i said yeah i read you know 1984 maybe he said well have you read burmese days if you're interested in post-colonialism you really want and colonialism you ought to read george orwell's first book which was burmese days about his time in burma in the in the british army and that's fiction or, it, it or it's is. memoir. Okay, it's fiction.
0: Yeah, but it's based on his real life account or something.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how it's defined. And technically, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. is a story like a fiction. Yes.
0: So, any anything else you want to say about your reading life before we really dive into the book that you
1: selected? I think that gives a pretty good pretty good beginning because we have so much to talk about with olive right i think
0: we have a lot to talk about yes i <laughs> really let's do start
1: with the structure since we were just talking about structure if that's okay
0: yeah please tell me because about... you had
1: a question about that
0: well, well i'd be curious if you could could talk a little bit about how you think the structure of this book is because in the notes i sent you you know i I asked the question what is this book really? It's not really a linear plot line. Some of the chapters I feel are like really like short stories um but they don't necessarily all directly involve the main character of Olive Kitteridge. I of course haven't read the precursor to this book, so I don't know if this I haven't read Olive Kitteridge which is the first book. I don't think I need to have read it in order to understand what's going on in this text but I wonder if the structure has something to do with that.
1: Um, let me just give a quick overview of how I approach this. I first heard how about all of Kitteridge the book and I thought oh you know I'm, and I don't know if I want to read it, I don't know what, you know it wasn't hitting my you know short list of things to read but I found out that HBO had a mini-series of Olive Kitteridge, starring Francis McDormand, who is one of my favorite actors in the whole world. And so I watched that and I thought, oh, she's a very, she's a very unlikable, difficult character. You know, mm. it's like, I don't think I'm gonna read Olive Kitteridge. Um, uh, but then uh, Oprah. Mm-hmm. Start restarted her book club, and her second choice was Olive Again. And that just got me in. And the way she she handled that, as a matter of fact, I've watched Oprah's episode three times now because I find it intriguing how Oprah did, did it, and, and the author was in the discussion with Oprah. Uh, so that's when I decided I wanted to read Olive again. But meanwhile, in my book club here, I thought, well, I'll have the group read Olive Kitteridge. And we read Olive Kitteridge. So it was the first time I'd read Strode. So, you know, complicated direction how I got there. We read it. And everybody in the in the book group gave it no more than a three out of five. They just said, you know, it was boring. It was kind of choppy. It was uneven. It, you know, the structure was weird and I agreed with them.
0: This is the original um, book, right? Not right.
1: Not That's the original one. Okay. And the original one, I'll be very clear on my, on my criticism on this one. Cause I can be a kind of a grumpy critic on the way people do books. I felt like the publishers had taken several of Strout's short stories, jammed them together and said, let's put them together and make a book out of them. Because some of the stories in all of the for the first run, Olive Kitteridge are not really Olive's barely in them. In one story, she's only like in one sentence. She's only mentioned as sort of an aside. And I thought, I don't like what this publisher published or or the author did. It's, it's, it seems kind of cheaty and not very professional. And and yet there was something about this character who intrigued me. Olive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. So that's why I would tell anyone that you don't have to read the first book. Matter of fact, if you really love Olive or you want to dig into Olive more, go back and read the first one, but read the second book because there's more more of a development of Olive as a person and some transformation going on in their life. Mm-hmm. I didn't see much of that, if maybe if any in the first book. Okay. So and and I even felt that with the second book, I felt the structure is uh, it's a bit better. It's not as choppy, but there are some books that Olive's really not on the stage very much. Exactly. And it's like, hmm, hmm, why is this important to us? So in my preparation for this, our conversation, I just focused on the time, on the key places where Olive was involved. Does that help you? Yeah.
0: Yeah, but I but this and I want to really do want to focus in on some of these places where Olive herself is kind of in the the space but for someone who's not read this author before, I've not read her. This is my first time. Why do you think the book is structured this way? Because I agree with why? you. Even in this even in this book The thing that I was so struck by was the fact that there are all these chapters where Olive either doesn't appear or she appears in such a tertiary manner that Mm -hmm. you have to wonder how it fits in with the story that Strout is trying to tell. Now, I I have some idea about that now, having read the book, but I'm just curious about your thoughts before we...
1: Well, I'm interested in your ideas because I don't understand why she did this. I, though, as I listened to Elizabeth Strout speaking with Oprah, I think that Elizabeth imagines these characters and these stories, and they just sort of, Olive appears to her and wants to be be heard from, and um, which is quite different from your traditional novel, where you've got a plot that goes through. Um, and, and the glue of holding t- things together in Olive again, there's not much glue. It's sort of left up, up to the reader to keep the connections going. There, One person said they were interconnected, and I'd say, well, they're sort of interconnected.
0: Well, yeah, so that's what I sort of thought was, so I read the first few chapters. Olive is kind of in some of those chapters. Then there's these chapters where she doesn't appear at all. There are these other characters, and so for a while I thought, "Oh, this is going to be like that Richard Powers book, uh, *The Overstory*, mm. where there's going to be the development of all these characters, and at some point they're going to all come back together." Because for a minute I had stopped kind of paying attention to like some of these characters. I was like, "I don't know what these perp- people's roles are. It's not mm-hmm. clear to me." Then I started paying attention because I was like, these people are all going to come back in some way. Like there's going to be some kind of thing at the end. It doesn't end up being the case. <laughs> they don't come back. So I was just, by the time I got to the end, I was like, I just don't understand why she did this the way that she did it.
1: Well, and I'm intrigued at, at how many readers stick with the structure and with that that way she did it. Uh, you know, my book club People really didn't care for it. They w- they weren't interested in reading Olive again mm-hmm. for that reason. Um, so,
0: so I think it's I, not- I don't
1: I don't know why she used this structure. Maybe she's maybe she's at maybe she is at heart a short story writer. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, and she's I think-
1: a, and she's clearly an observer of hu- the human condition of human the humanity of people that seems to be more important to her than trying to put connections and plot together
0: yeah what i was going to say was it's not until i went back through because you know you and i we have a similar practice you know you underline all this stuff you bookmark it you do all this kind of thing when you go back through and you write it all down you start to see something that emerges and one of the things that i thought was just that this is really a book about you know provincial life uh, the everyday the mundane mm-hmm. the uh, and kind of a little bit of a treatise on it it's a sort of depressing book in a lot of ways right? oh I don't
1: think it's sort of Paul I think, I think definitely you want you don't want to be already a little depressed and read this book <laughs>
0: No. Okay. Cause I, I did, I was trying to think about like how to balance my discussion of like, I find many of the themes of the book to be highly depressing and, and yet I walked away from the book feeling some kind of better understanding, like you said, of the types of things that people are dealing with in their everyday life. One of the things that I found Super intriguing about the way that she tells these depressing stories is that she doesn't really harp on things. There are these mm. lines throughout the book that just sort of get dropped in. I I call them the tragedy lines of the book. It'll be like, I can just, you know, I'm gonna paraphrase some of these things that happen, right? Sure. You know, there's a line, something about like, oh, she was never really the same wow. after her son stabbed that woman 29 times. And it just gets dropped in, right? There's like a story where, okay. Or there's like this story about this man who loved this other woman, was married to this woman. The woman he actually loved went and sat down in the middle of the freeway, got hit by a car, and she committed suicide, right? So there are these like, there's a way that she structures the stories that smacks you with these really terrible things that people have had to experience, And then
1: she she doesn't doesn't dwell. I like that your insight on that, Paul. She she doesn't doesn't dwell. dwell.
0: Right. It's like she just moves on and she just, she just kind of like helps you to see like, oh yeah, people die. People uh, soil themselves. People get hit by a bus. They, (laughs) I mean, there's all these things that happen to these characters uh, people go on antidepressants they have affairs they do all this kind of stuff and despite all that life just goes on the seasons change the light changes you know everything just keeps moving forward so to speak and how people deal with it is kind of their own business i guess
1: well i've i've really struggled with depression most of my life so i'm i'm really on alert to make sure I don't pull myself into that down into that hole. Mm -hmm. But I think that what Strout does is that she, she, I didn't, I didn't have that problem because I, there were two things that helped me. One was way she wrote beautifully about nature. Mm. Uh, And she took me back to my days of growing up as a kid in a, in a rural setting and the seasons and the colors and the smells and winter, and the coldness of winter. Um, and the other thing was her, the use of humor. There's something brilliant about um, the fact that Olive never really uses horrible language, but it's all coded. Like, instead of using the Lord's name in vain, she says, oh, Godfrey, or Hell's Bells. or Hell's <laughs> Bells, yes. <laughs> Like, yeah, She has these things that you know that she del- she probably delivered them with like, you know, with the expletive language we'd have today, but with the same vigor and probably the same effect. But there was, it's just, I don't know what it did. It just kind of helped me from s- staying in a trough of depression and sadness for these people.
0: Yeah, I didn't, I, I agree with you. I don't feel... Uh, depressed for them. I feel like people were m- moving through their lives. And I don't actually dislike Olive. If you had just read this book, what would your relationship be to her as a character?
1: Well, Olive saved herself in this book. Because Olive began to become a little more self-aware, little by little. Mm-hmm. And she became, started to be admit that she had messed up hmm so she was she was uh because when i read the first book i didn't like her and i thought why do i want to waste my time reading about this terrible character i felt like i became like all of judgmental critical of her saying you know you're just judgmental you know you're interpersonally aggressive you're a bully you know you're an unkind i mean i actually sat down and made a uh sat down with a, a piece of paper and wrote down, you know, pluses and minuses about all of, them. and, uh, you know, like she's strange, she's prickly, she's wry, cantankerous. Uh, I I wrote down, she's sometimes brutal. You know, she's really brutal in the way oh, she handles she's very people. Brutal. Mm-hmm. Very uh, she's brutal. not self-aware. And then I wrote, is she mean? mark. And that's when I stopped and thought, I don't know if she's mean or not. I don't know if she's intentionally mean. I just think that's who she is. She's
0: just Yeah, not very I wrote well down that, I wrote down that she's sardonic. Which means it means like she's sarcastic and somewhat bitter. Right. Bitter. She comes that's across a-huh. she comes across as bitter, but the that's reason I word. chose the word sardonic is because her bitterness to me was endearing. Mm. I wrote down endearingly bitter about life's disappointments, and
1: endearing you know, meaning that you you thought that she was a little bit lovable in the, in the mix of it all.
0: you know i really I really did, and I think that i I realize that in the book she's going through this kind of self transformation issue. She's obviously an old woman she's looking back on her life and having these moments that we all will probably have at some point where we're trying to evaluate what has become of our lives. What have we accomplished? Were we good people? Were we bad people? And there's all these relationships that she has to look at that through, including her two husbands, the relationship with her son, Christopher, Mm -hmm. um, things of that nature. But I just found her to be just kind of likable despite the fact that she carried all this bitterness with her.
1: Because I don't know that she
0: was conscious about her bitterness.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that she'd be surprised if somebody came up to her and said, Olive, you're a bitter, angry person. Maybe that's the angry part, but I think she would be surprised. Like, no, I'm just telling like it is. I'm not angry. you know, you know, the typical story, you know, the person who says, you you know, you're really angry, The person goes, I'm not angry. (laughs) And that's sort of like all of this.
0: So, you know, i rather quite like her, actually. Um, Though I find the, I don't want to necessarily go here right now, but I, I do find the last page of the novel to be really, you know, quite, quite difficult in terms of where she ends up as a character Um, because those last two chapters in particular are really, she really goes through some things I would say that aren't written about in a way that's like, it's tragic what she goes through. Um, But they aren't written about in a way that makes it seem like you would necessarily sympathize with her. I don't know.
1: I wonder, Paul, if it's, i just this just came to me, I wonder if it's like, I don't think you've had this with your parents yet, but I wonder if it's like having a parent who is going through the last stages of their life, mm-hmm. and it just gets messy and ugly and sad, and maybe that that's, seems to be how she wraps up the book.
0: No, it is, it is how she wraps up the book. I mean, think about all the things that happens and I'll just, you know, since this will probably get cut into the edited version, I'll just tell people we're going to say things about what happens in the book. So, yep. um, you know, she has this heart attack, you know, she ends up having to go through this. I mean, actually, I find these parts of the book about what happens to your body as you start aging I mean, I'm not that Mm -hmm. old yet, but this, this whole thing about, you know, the fact that she, she says she soils herself, her bowels pretty consistently release themselves when she's not (laughs) in the bathroom. Um,
1: Yeah. There's a little bit too much information there, isn't
0: there? It's part of getting older. Right. And it's part of getting older that we don't. and, And then just like moving out of your house being put into this kind of like assisted living, retirement community, apartment home thing, not having friends, the loneliness in the last two chapters that she seems to experience. Um, It just makes you think a lot about what the end of life must be like. And if she was happy, content, she doesn't seem to be by the end of the book content with who she is as a person.
1: It's a very good question. I would agree with that. But I think she's I think that she has she's achieved enough self-awareness that I don't know how to say this, this self-awareness that I think she's seeing some of the value of the of the troubles and the struggles that she's been through. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's evidence for that statement though.
0: Well, what, makes maybe you it's wishful, say it?
1: maybe maybe it's wishful thinking on my part.
0: I don't know if it's wishful thinking. I mean, I think that one of the mysteries of the book is that towards the end, you see her writing these memories down. right? Her son Christopher brings her this typewriter, and she's writing these things down. And of course, the last page of the book is this moment where she, writes down this really profound line, you know, that's probably worth talking about. Let me
1: mm. see if I can find it in my notes here. It was in my quote too, wasn't it?
0: I think that you do have this quote. Let's, let's talk about this. Oh yeah, this is like quote four that I sent you. Do you have my notes or do or you have your notes of what you sent me?
1: I have most of your notes. Okay. Uh, my print, like always happens, right? My printer ran out of ink. just
0: Oh, sure. On which is why she wanted a, t- which is why she wanted a typewriter, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is, uh, I- I'll just read this quote that you sent me sure. I, it, on my notes. It's quote four. Okay. Um, cause I think this is important to talk about, you know, and so she sat watching the sky the clouds the clouds high up there and she looked down then at the roses which were pretty amazing after just one year she leaned forward and peered at the rose bush why there was another bud coming right behind that bloom boy did that make her happy the sight of that new fresh rosebud and then she sat back and thought about her death and the sense of wonder and trepidation returned to her it would come. Yep, yep, she said. And for many more minutes, she sat there, not even really knowing what she thought. Finally, Olive got up slowly, leaning on her cane, and moved to her table. She sat down in her chair, put her glasses on, and put a new sheet of paper into the typewriter. Leaning forward, poking at the keys, she typed one sentence. Then she typed one more. She pulled the sheet of paper out and placed it carefully on top of her pile of memories. The words she had just written reverberated in her head. I do not have a clue who I have been. Truthfully, I do not understand a thing. It's on page 249 of the Kindle edition. I think it's like page 289 of my edition. So, you know, a lot of what this book deals with, Alan, is is coming to grips, coming to terms with our own demise, our own mortality. Mm-hmm. Does it make you think about that at all? And I'm not asking that because you are old. I'm just asking that in terms of a theme.
1: Hmm. Uh... My head was somewhere else. Hold on a second. Um well tell me
0: where your head was, and then we can go back to my question.
1: My head was, Olive, you're being hard on yourself. Mm. You really do have a clue. Through two books, we've watched you get some clues. Mm-hmm. Um so it's and, and I guess as a reader I'm sitting going, should I feel sad for You know, is this really depressing? That she still thinks she has no clue, or is she just being Olive? I don't have a clue. I don't know what happened. It's like, come on, Olive, straighten up here. You, you, you you've shown us some brilliant insights into things you've done. Uh, you know, she became like she became like the pastor, father, confessor to Cindy, who was dying of cancer. You know, and just a brilliant piece of compassion and empathy and. Uh, t- uh, active love for this woman. Uh so I, that that's where I that's where I got stopped with with the where the author ended this was like, no, let's remember there were some real bright spots where and uh so to, to ask that about myself, I'm not that hard on myself. I'm very grateful for the things I've learned, the things I've done. Um, I don't get depressed about dying. I'm not upset about it. I actually look forward to it. Um, so, yeah, I, I've answered two things there. But
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I left the book feeling sorry for her. I don't know that I left the book feeling, I'm like you, I don't know that she doesn't know who she is. Mm-hmm. I... I'm I'm very curious about this device that Strout puts in because it doesn't get developed in the book. It just gets developed in these last pages of the book about her writing her memories down. Mm-hmm. And I and then this this paper, you know, that she types this sentence on about, I don't have a clue who I've been, truthfully, I don't understand a thing, makes, you know, it seems like a cover page, right? Or or kind of like a foreword. To whatever it is, and so you sort of get this vision in your head of like, okay, is is the series of books themselves Olive's memories? That was one of the things that I thought
1: hmm.
0: was I was like, okay, maybe that's what Strout was up to. Was that these short stories are actually things that Olive remembers? They are her memories. She doesn't necessarily insert herself into all of those stories because she's trying to tell a greater story about what life is actually like and how do you get your way through life. Mm -hmm. Then I thought maybe she's trying to feel sorry for herself and when her son Christopher, after she dies, reads these memories, he'll somehow have some greater understanding about his mother because this strained relationship between Christopher and his mother is something that seems to be a theme in the book. So Mm -hmm. it can go lots of ways. You could read it lots of different ways. I agree. But death, death in and of itself is a theme in the book. Just, you know, you, you bring up this, this uh, quote about, this chapter with Cindy. And I think mm-hmm. this is one of the chapters. Yeah. Your first two quotes are actually from this chapter. One has to do that. The chapter is called the light. Uh-huh. And, uh, talk a little bit about why this chapter moved you so much.
1: Well, I, 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 I described that. I felt like this was a new olive. This wasn't an olive I had not seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to, some more background on this before she went to see cindy she's it starts out that she's cindy in the grocery store and cindy's obviously having some trouble with chemotherapy or her mind or whatever and and olive just she gets very practical she goes in okay what's on your list let's get what's on your list and let's get you out of here you know just such a practical thing that She doesn't sit there and analyze her and ask her feelings. She just takes, helps her take care of business. But then she follows up on it and goes to see Cindy and, and goes to, you know, and just sits down with her and lets her talk about dying. Mm -hmm. And Olive is honest about dying. She said, Yeah, it's going to happen to all of us.
0: Well, and and in fact, she says that she's scared of it. Yeah. To ease Cindy, right? To be like, it's okay if you're scared.
1: And this is in contrast with what our culture does. And this was in the Oprah segment, not only Oprah, but Stroud and some of the people who are participating, we're talking about how our culture, it's not okay to talk about death. And our culture is a bit unusual in this. We don't talk about death. We don't want to talk about the details. Uh, you know, her, her fellow librarian send her a get well card, and everybody knows she's not going to get well, and she just picks up, rips it up, throws it in the trash, you know. and uh, Her husband can't deal with the reality that she's going to be going. Uh, so I just thought it was... I think it was who Strout who had said when she was writing this, she said, well, she said... After she wrote this bit, she said, Well, look at you, Olive. You're growing up a bit. <laughs> mm. So that's why this one to me was it was, and that's when I started to change my mind about Olive, that she wasn't all bad. She was something more than the tough exterior that she showed to the world.
0: Yeah, and this is why I say this is this is one of the moments where I would say that it's why she's endearingly sardonic, right? Because Mm -hmm. you do get to see this side of her that is clearly compassionate, clearly not just about the pragmatics of life. Toward this, this woman, I think also this comes up for me in the chapter titled The Poet, where she really worries that this, this poet who is from her hometown, right? That she had had breakfast with or whatever. And Uh clearly taught math many years ago and stuff. Um, You know, she reads that story about her getting hit by a bus in New York and she immediately thinks, oh, she tried to commit suicide and she gets very nervous that that the poet tried to commit suicide it turns out it was just an accident of course right but you mm-hmm. see these like little moments of empathy in her that i think are really fascinating and it turns out she's a liberal that's another was, part of the book that i find really interesting
1: and that surprised you um
0: i don't know you know one of the things that the book made me really i've all I've always known this, but I've never really... Maine, to me, is like an intriguing place in our country, right? It's... I don't know much about Maine. I I picture it to be this kind of very rural place. But I know it's also one of these places that electorally... Like some, it's like a flip flopper, right? Like sometimes it's conservative, sometimes it's liberal. Um, it just makes me want to go visit Maine. Like the book is just about the state of Maine, and I don't know anything about that place.
1: Well, it's interesting you bring that up because that, I want to go back a bit. To, let's come back to that in a minute. I did want to just say, to wrap up Olive and Cindy, what I thought was brilliant about that part was that Olive did the best that any good qualified professional could do Mm -hmm. with with helping, and the Christian circles they call it ministering to Cindy, Mm -hmm. but she didn't use touchy-feely words and she didn't use therapist talk.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I just thought that was brilliant. Hmm. But on on Maine the first quote I had was I felt that mm-hmm. thatrout's use of nature and yeah. the seasons which we talked about a little bit before was to me like a it was like a uh, breath of fresh air and a mm-hmm. breath of survival you know that we get all these things that you talked about as well you know some of these really grim stories and sadnesses and and awful things happening. And then you read this thing about uh, what she should have written about was that light in February, how it changed the way the world looked. People complained about February. It was cold and snowy and oftentimes wet and damp and people were ready for spring. But for Cindy, the light of the month had always been like a secret and it remained a secret even now because in February, the days were really getting longer. And you could see it if you really looked. You could see how at the end of each day the world seemed cracked open. An extra light made its way across the stark trees and promised, it promised that light. And what a thing that was. And Cindy lay on her bed. She could see this even now, the gold of of the last light opening the world. I mean, to Um, me, there's, there's hope there, there's beauty, there's poetry. Uh, It's just stunning.
0: It, it really is. It's one of the best lines of the book. Um, and, and I think that I agree with you in terms of her ability to, to command nature. I mean, that these, uh, these sections of the book where, What I really loved was when she was writing about autumn, because like you, I grew up in the Midwest. So of course I can relate to this line about February. I mean, growing up in Wisconsin and then living in Minnesota, it is dark, cold, and terrible for pretty much from like October until April, right? But you do start to see the days get longer and you do start to, you will occasionally have these days in the early spring where like there will just be enough warmth that you feel like, oh, this is going to end. This, this terminable coldness and terribleness is going to end type of thing. I really liked the way that she wrote about autumn though. And that comes up quite a bit. Uh, The Mm -hmm. way that the trees change color. The light coming through the trees, watching the um, maple leaves wow. fall down one at a time or in pairs. Um, it's 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 quite it's lovely. It's quite beautiful. Part of the book, I would say, the rose. And to
1: me, it was like a breather from the intensity of this book. And yeah. and also, this felt like a metaphor for her entire narrative. In what you way? Know, it's a metaphor that there are there are rays of light, and it feels like February is going to go on forever, and we're never going to get out of this frozen tundra of February. But there are rays of light, and I think that's a metaphor for Olive's trajectory. Mm-hmm. She does have some glimmers of light. She she doesn't she doesn't you know some people think that people never change after age X. You know that people just don't change and. She does change, and she grows. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was just a beautiful juxtaposition of how nature gives us this relief and how the author has given us these relief, these reliefs, these breathers in the very sad and um, sometimes, as you said, tragic uh, events of just living day to day and dying and the trajectory toward dying.
0: Yeah, but I think rebirth too, right? Like this idea that the world is always going to go on. Mm. You know, one of the things that I was really intrigued about in the book was the was these like relationships between because this this is a book also largely about relationships. And these relationships between the husbands and wives, between the brothers and sisters, between the, even, even between like lawyers and their clients, Mm -hmm. uh, just all this kind of stuff that comes up in the book, yeah, I just that scene between there's two characters in the book, Bernie and Suzanne. Suzanne's father dies in a tragic house fire. Um gets burned to death, incinerated. And um and Bernie is their like kind of lifetime lawyer or whatever and they have this really intense conversation about you know, just life and love and infidelity because suzanne has had an affair and she's asking bernie if she should tell her husband about the affair with her therapist and bernie is talking about how clearly her father loved her even though it's clear from the story that suzanne never felt that kind of relationship with her father i don't know there's just something about the way these relationships are framed And you have to think, like, what's... I just kept thinking, what's going to happen to these children? Like, what happens to Suzanne? What happens to Christopher, right? Like, let's say Christopher finds all these memories and stuff. How does his idea of his mother change?
1: Or what what if Christopher read Olive, Kitteridge, and Olive again? Right you know what if what what if those were the memories and he he saw the the various different angles of w- looking at his mother and who she was
0: yeah so i mean you know like going the reason i brought that up is because it goes to these seasons it goes to this like kind of metaphor of light that you were talking about and it seems to me that you know strout might be making a larger commentary on we often only see things through one perspective. We mm. we maybe only have limited knowledge about what this person's relationships are in life. Or do do you understand what I'm saying? Is like I'm 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 just trying to think about the idea that you're thinking of the seasons as a metaphor. I'm thinking of. Of that light quote as as like you know one of the things that i miss about the seasons is that it makes the way the light comes through the trees for example makes you see the world differently right i mean Mm -hmm. you probably remember Mm this
1: yes indeed
0: and and i i just think that the stories in this book are in some ways a way of helping us see see people's lived experience through kind of a different frame of light or a different frame of reference. Which is why I didn't leave the the book feeling depressed. Because I think all these people, despite these tragedies that they endear in the book, go on to lead, you know, arguably quite fairly normal everyday lives.
1: Well, and and they and they realize they just have to get up again tomorrow and do it again. Do it again. Yes, no matter how much they might have blown it in the past or how they're how, how limited their perspective is or their view of anything yeah, yeah. well it's um, interesting one of the one of the things I thought about as we were just saying that is that um, in my career, I had more than twenty five major career moves and most of them were managing people, yeah. getting getting things done through people. I couldn't do it all myself. I had to enlist people to get it done, and I was the boss, and I would get so tired of people, and this book helped me sit back and think, I wonder what I missed, with what was going on in some of these people's lives, and what was causing some of their behaviors in the workplace.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it, it, it raised in me again, my impatience and my weariness with the foibles and the stupidity of some of the way people's behaved in the workplace. And at the same time, it helped me sort of give them a bit of more of a pass and a little more space to say, I don't know what else was going on in their lives.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good point. We don't know if someone's been unfaithful. We don't know if someone's has a partner that's dying of cancer. We don't know if somebody is dealing with a, like, I mean, you know, certain societal issues do come up in the book like the opioid crisis, for example. Right. I mean, like it's, it's very subtle. Sort of just sneaks in there, but like people's drug addiction problems comes up in the text. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I was, um, this goes a little bit to kind of the political undertone of the book, which is not, Mm. not totally strong. Um, but, but there are moments when you think, Hmm, this makes me think of structure, also. <laughs> um,
1: so, I'm I'll glad you brought that together. up. That was what—that was one of my quotes that I want. Yeah, well, that's why I, I want to
0: get to this quote about that you put up, uh, because I think it's an important part of the book. So, t- tell us about this quote. I don't know if you want to read the whole thing or if you want to paraphrase or talk a little bit huh. about what's going on here.
1: Well, the background is that Olive has had the heart attack. She's been sent home. She's she's ambulatory enough that she can get around, but she really shouldn't be left alone. Right. So she has has a visiting nurse come in and uh, a, a nurse comes in who's dressed unusually for mm-hmm. for um Olive. And uh and I'll just read that part of this thing. Um Well, maybe I'm going to have to go back. I'll yeah, read from around. the beginning. All right. Olive got up and walked out into the hallway, and standing there was a d- young, dark-skinned woman wearing a brilliant peach-colored headscarf and a long robe-like dress that was a deeper peach color. Well, hello, 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 said Olive. Look at you. You look like a butterfly. Come on in. Uh, <clears throat> and then I'm just going to jump down there. So... This is the kind of thing that my my uh, very insensitive father might say to people, you know, like being so blunt is like you don't realize how racist you're being with what you just said
0: right <laughs> you know? right
1: and then um then later, uh, Olive says, Olive sat down and and Olive thought again that she looked beautiful. I'm going to call you Butterfly, Olive said, and the woman smiled with those bright white teeth and shrugged and said, okay, but my name is Halima. Mm -hmm. Now tell me, Miss Halima Butterfly, you must come from Shirley Falls. And Halima said that was right. She had gone to Central Maine Community College and earned her nurse's aid degree, and she shrugged, raising her arms slightly, her robe flapping like gentle wings. Here she was, she said. You were born here, Olive asked. I was born in Nashville, then my mother moved here 15 years ago. Was she in one of those camps in Kenya? Olive asked her. And the woman's face brightened. You know about the camps? She asked. Of course I do. Do you think I'm an ignorant fool? That made me really laugh. Mm-hmm. Laughing made me sad at the same time. Yeah. No, I don't think that. Halima leaned back in her chair. My mother was in the camp for eight years, and then she was able to come over here. Do you like it here, Olive asked. Halima only smiled. And then later, Olive says to her, why do you wear that stuff? She's talking about her, her uh, hijab. Ha- ha- hijab and her long gun. Right. Halima was washing the dishes, and she turned to smile at over, Olive over her shoulder. It is who I am. And after a minute, Halima turned the water off and said, why do you wear that stuff?
0: hmm
1: Okay. So Dalb, I was just asking.
0: Yeah, it's great. I mean it brings up a lot of it brings up a lot of historical stuff. This is of course Somali refugees. Right.
1: Um And yet she's not a refugee, Alima. She's a second generation. Right. right?
0: Yeah, she's a second generation. She's Muslim. There's, there's a section of this uh, part of the text also where there's another nurse home aide. And this is what I mean when I say this is one reason why you sort of feel endeared to Olive, right? Because the first, her host, the first nurse aide that's at her house, whose name is Betty, okay, answers <laughs> the door when Halima comes and is very rude to Halima And a few pages after this section that you just read, Betty comes back and Olive chastises her and says, you will not treat people in my house the way that you treated her. And I I thought, you know, that's just a, there's a lot going on, right? It, It points to the complications. Like you said, clearly, her calling Halima a butterfly is, in many ways, c- can be read offensively. It can also be read as, you know, she's old woman, she looks beautiful, but it, but it can be read in a certain way as, as racist. Um,
1: and And clearly insensitive and, and insensitive and yes. she, and it 's clear that uh, that Olive is uncomfortable she doesn 't know what to do with what 's in front of her
0: yeah so you know this brings in the whole political undertone of refugees there 's a very strong undercurrent at the end of the book about the current time that we 're living in with the current administration, the federal right. administration. Um, refugees, the fact that Halima is a Muslim probably says something about a commentary on the Muslim ban that has been put in place by the current administration. This book came out in what year? 2019. So several years into the, uh, several years into the President Trump's administration. So, you know, I, I rather liked that section of the book. that she. Was I
1: did too. And in, in Oprah's video, there was a Somali woman. Actually, there were a couple of Muslim women in the audience, this small audience that Oprah had. And the woman, the one woman I'm thinking about was dressed in, not as in peach, but she was dressed in quite dark colors. And she had the hijab, hijab and the, a long robe. And she thanked Elizabeth Strout for uh, seeing them because there are a lot of Somali refugees in Maine. And she made a point that, you know, Maine is not a very diverse place. <laughs> and she really appreciated being seen. And Elizabeth Strout also mentioned Somali refugees in her book called The Burgess Boys. So I think Strout has a real heart for wrestling with the people, the white people, if you will, the the natives of Maine or what, wherever she is, that of dealing with quote the others coming in and how they're they they, they find it difficult. And I, you know, I have to give Olive credit at this point. You know, she did a pretty good job with that, even though I found most of her approach was pretty unhealthy and offensive. But in the end, she said, "Okay." And that I'd forgotten about the fact that she called Betty to task later and said, you will not treat someone who's a guest in my house that way again. And I'd forgotten that that was a real plus, plus grade for uh, Olive.
0: Right. And of course, like Betty has this affinity for President Trump that is just, you know, slyly underwritten into the book in terms of
1: in so few words something about his orange hair or something this is really weird yeah 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 uh, there's, if you, there's a, not, if you if you're not if you're not reading closely you might even have missed it you you would
0: miss it i think yeah yeah um so i i, I really i really liked that part of the um
1: the book quite a bit
0: i have a I like few what other you had
1: this I've been thinking again about what you said about relationships and that, that is really true. So much of the book is really, it's linked to troubled relationships. Most of them were troubled.
0: I don't know if they were troubled or if they were misunderstood. See, that's one of the things that I was grappling
1: with. Or just normal Oh, misunderstood. That's an interesting question.
0: Because this is really what I was thinking about with a lot of these relationships, the way that she writes them. It seems like most of these people in the book have some sort of problematic relationship with somebody, mostly family members. And the reason I say misunderstood is because it seemed to me like a lot of the reasons that there were problems was because there were misunderstandings or there were miscommunications, things that things that didn't get said things that were missed in translation for lack of a better word Mm. i don't necessarily have any textual evidentiary support for that claim about the way that i read the relationships but it just seems to me like like she seems to be making some kind of commentary about the fact that we often misunderstand people in our lives because we are missing some piece of information or something was not said to us, right? Like I'm thinking specifically about this, um, I'm thinking specifically about this like relation or this scene that I don't know why this scene in particular felt so powerful to me in the book, but the scene between Suzanne and Bernie Uh, Suzanne's father dies in this tragic house fire and Suzanne is some kind of she's a lawyer of some sort in New York City that's another thing in the book there's there's this thing about the difference between the rural and the urban but we can talk Mm -hmm. about that if you want to Um, but Suzanne has this moment where she's asking bernie if bernie thought her father was proud of her and bernie says something of like you know i know your father was proud of you and then she says but did he ever say it right and it it just struck me because it was like i think so many of us go through our lives with relationships where we want somebody to say something to us and okay. and we don't hear the thing that we want to have heard even though the thing that we want to have heard is probably true right like suzanne's pro- father probably was proud of her but he never said it and so suzanne has to live with this kind of open question this open wound about if she lived up to her father's expectations. And it's such a psychological thing that we do to ourselves as humans. Mm. You know, Olive herself, I feel like the relationship with Christopher is so much about something that she wants to hear him say. And and, and I wondered if the thing that she wanted to hear him say was that she was a good mother, because mm. there's this whole scene at the end. <laughs> Where, the, remember, she has the heart attack, she's with the doctor, and there's this dialogue between her and the doctor. And the doctor says something to her like, you must have been a really good mother, Olive. And then she says, well, why do you say that? And then the doctor says, well, your son calls here every day to check on you. And Olive seems sort of flabbergasted by that, right? Uh-huh. So I guess the book really made me think about what are the things that we want people to say to us that they don't say to
1: us? That's an excellent question, Paul.
0: And how does it end up kind of steering the direction of our lives in certain types of ways because we psychologically can't bring ourselves to ask the question that we want to ask of the people closest to us in our lives? Maybe because we're, maybe because we put up walls, defense mechanisms, we, we're not prepared to hear the answer. That's why I'm saying like, you know, this book is so... you read it and you're like, "What is going on?" But when you go back through and you write all this stuff down that happens and you re- th- you think about everything that gets stacked on top of each other, there are these really profound questions that she is mm. trying to get us to grapple with, which is why I think the book actually works. It must be the reason that people are reading it in such large numbers.
1: And why I can't get it out of my head. I mean, yeah. You, I mean, you... Every once in a while, one of these characters will come into my head, and you bring back Bernie and Suzanne again. It's like, I can I'm back in that. I can just see this sort of old house with the office upstairs, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and he's this guy who I think he's Jewish, and, you know, and so they're crossing religious boundaries there, and yet he's, he's being like this very wise, kindly father figure for her.
0: Well, there's that. And, you know, this was one of my quotes that I pulled out actually from that chapter, but it has to do with, there's these questions in the book about religion, spirituality and atheism. So, you know, Suzanne is, Suzanne is obviously distraught about what did her father think about her, but there's also this, to me, Alan, this is one of the lines of the whole book right here. It's on page one sixteen in the print copy. And I'm just going to read it because I think it's just this wow thing. Suzanne and Bernie had been talking about their religious um, beliefs and uh, whether they're atheist, secular, Jewish, all of this comes up. And Suzanne just says, quote, I think our job, maybe even our duty is to bear the burden of the mystery with as much grace as we can end quote it's it's really it's really that's that's something
1: that could have been written 100 years ago 500 years ago you know could have been written by saint thomas aquinas or some greek philosopher right but it's very current in very current language Bear the mystery, the burden of the mystery with as much grace as possible. And I mean, I could just get lost in that thinking about what she's saying there.
0: Oh, yeah. That whole section, you know, they have this, she has, Suzanne has this kind of, you know, philosophical treatise on atheism and, uh, they, they sort of talk about this like cosmic relationality, right? Like, oh, when I was a kid walking in the forest, I had this sense of like the interconnected nature of all things. and And then there's this, you know, and then it ends with this quote that I read about the mystery. And yeah, you really just think about it because it's another way that death gets brought into the book for me. Mm. And like dealing with your own mortality But it's not not heavy-handed, right? It's not this kind of like sometimes you read these books and they browbeat you with these kinds of questions, right? This is just very light. If you read it with enough slowness, you could sit with that quote, which I did for a long time. What does that Mm -hmm. even mean to bear the burden of the mystery with as much grace as we can? What does it mean and, to you?
1: And what does that mean with grace?
0: With grace, yeah.
1: It mean it means not just accepting it. It means being graceful about it. Mean graceful means you're being kind to yourself and to others. Gracious, um, yeah.
0: I think that's a really important part too. what you just said, being, being kind to yourself. Cause again, going back to relationships, I think so much, again, so much of the way that these characters are written there, there's also the, there are the things that are left unsaid between the characters. There's also the way that there are things that people did to other people that hmm. that either get buried or that do not get carried with grace right i'm thinking about this i thought one of the most odd stories in the book was this story of uh, called the exiles which is about the two brothers and the sister and there's like
1: that was an the, odd piece it's, i agree it's a
0: very it. it's a very very odd story it's very i had to read it more than once because i couldn't it was very complicated
1: but, I, I almost gave up on it because I thought, what, 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 I don't like this story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but at the center of that story is this terrible situation where the, clearly there are these two brothers. And one of the brothers accidentally killed the father by releasing the clutch on a car. And the car ran the father over and killed him way back when they were young right?
1: Just let me inter- let let me inter- inter- interject here. This is the story of the Burgess Boys, one of her earlier books. So you've read re- the Burgess
0: Boys. You've brought it up several times. Have yes. you read it.
1: Yes. That's we that's actually- the
0: story of that book.
1: Well, that's yeah. It's those two boys. So they're reappearing in this book, and I'm reading this, and it had been several years since I read the Burgess Boys. I thought, wait a minute. Something's going on in my subconscious. I know something about the what? Who are these people? And then it finally dawned on me that it was the Burgess Boys.
0: Oh, well, then that brings up a whole different question about why the book is structured the way it is.
1: Well, was I think she she doing... had, I think I think that the Burgess Boys probably knocked on her psychic door and said, "Hey, we still have some things to talk about here. We 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 need to we need to be involved here." And I think that's why it's sort of just—it's uh, awkward and a bit—it's uh, just not—it just seems out of place to me. Yeah, I mean, again, back to the structure: how Strout structures her books, and well, if it you want you, if, if you're like me and want a nice, tidy structure, you're not going to get it in this book.
0: Well, it makes you think about, I guess, like—and I don't know because I haven't read any other Elizabeth Strout books is there are these authors who work across multiple books to develop characters. And really the only way to understand their project is to read their full everything they've ever written in order to understand what it is that they're doing. So I don't know if that's what she's up to as an author. I'm not sure. But the the thing with that story was just the fact that, like, obviously, one of these boys had carried this guilt around, thinking he killed his father for, like, a long time, decades. And then it was only after the other brother admitted that he was the one who had (laughs) accidentally popped the clutch.
1: And blamed it on his little brother. And blamed
0: it on his little brother. And then... (laughs) they don't seem to have any sort of animosity towards each other in mm. fact it's you know jim in that story is this kind of like depressed you know he's on antidepressants he lives in the city there's there's all this kind of stuff that's going on in that story and um and is a, i think wow. he's even dealing with having an affair And Bob is like, Bob says something that I just thought was so insensitive. Uh, You know, he said, oh, just get over it. Like, you know, you just, this thing happened and you need to just, you know, deal with it and get over it and all this stuff. But this was about the affair. And um, I don't know. I just thought it was a weird story about the way that, People have relationships with each other.
1: And you were talking about things, doing things to other people when you were talking about this story. What were you asking there?
0: Doing things to other people. I just think that, like, sometimes in life we do things and we don't always. Like we either carry guilt about those things when there might not be any guilt associated with it or any Mm. need for us to carry guilt associated with it, or we don't carry guilt about something that we did. It never gets talked about to us, right? People live their whole relationship with us without addressing the thing, whatever the thing was, and... And it just always, it's like there are these unresolved issues that we all carry around with us all the time. Another example of this in the book is like towards the end, the the very last chapter when she meets her friend, I think her friend's name is Isabel. Yes. And Isabel recounts this story of when, when she was a mother, a single mother, and her daughter got pregnant from her school teacher and she went into the room uh, she went into her daughter's room and she cut off her hair.
1: Oh as wow. Punishment. Oh, how, how Do you remember
0: brutal?
1: this? No, oh, I, brutal. I don't remember the cutting off the hair part. I must have blocked that out.
0: Oh yeah. There it was I mean it was literally she was like, you know, she had this beautiful yellow hair and I went into the room and I cut I cut all of her hair off. And you know, Olive was like, you know, for lack of a better word, well damn, you know, like that seems like a very vicious thing to do or whatever. And then Olive asks her, does your daughter did your daughter forgive you for that?
1: Mm.
0: And she says, "Oh yeah, my daughter's perfectly lovely." And you know, her grand or you know, the granddaughter is also clearly quite accomplished. Like it's, you know, it's a child born of sin, but all this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I, um, I just thought, wow, she's carrying all that, you know, we do things to people, Alan, and we sometimes think back and we go, I shouldn't have done that thing. And we, we either rack ourselves with guilt or we just think that it's a non issue. Mm-hmm when it may in fact be the biggest thing that's ever happened to that person. And it completely shifts the relationship that they have with us.
1: And yet in this story, in those two stories you just talked about, the brothers and Isabel, Strout puts it back on the stage and says, we're gonna take a look at this, right? And how seldom, maybe that's the brilliance of her of what she's doing here is so she I think even as a reader she challenges me to say okay what are the things in your life that like this that you might want to re-examine yeah I agree things that you would ha- thought you had all figured out but well not really they need some need some more thought
0: And just, you know, I think the other thing about the book is, is just that it really makes you think about what it will be like to get older. I don't know. I wrote it, I wrote, you know, you know me because you, you know, I always have these books and I write these things, but uh, what I wrote on this kind of like front flap that's blank where I always make all my little notes about things I want to talk about. The very top note says, you know, the book actually makes me want to be an old man.
1: Um, what, what? I'm very surprised that you said that. Go why? Why? Well, I don't Does know. It because, you? because you're very young. And so the book, the book gave you some kind of some longing or some winsomeness for being old, growing old
0: yeah i think so i mean i've always considered myself an old soul you know Mm -hmm. i i think that my whole life i've always felt personally like i've i'm much older than i am but there's there's something about there's something about getting older that i look forward to um I think it's another line. It's not a quote that I sent you, but there was another line in the book that said something about, did I write it down here? Um... Oh yeah. Okay. It's on page uh, 204 of the print version. I think it's Olive saying this. You know, she says, when you get old, you become invisible. It's just the truth. And it's freeing in a way. It's just that you don't count anymore and there is something freeing about that. Um, I don't know. I just, I think that being older comes with wisdom. You, you get like a certain amount of wisdom. You have a certain amount of freedom from all this pretentiousness you carry around when you're younger, thinking like trying to impress other people, mm-hmm. living for other people. Just all this kind of stuff. There's something about the book that just made me feel like, oh, I think, you know, getting older. A lot of people see it as scary. I think of it as like,
1: not scary. Oh, that's very helpful insight. That's very. That's nice to to learn that about you, Paul. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to be. I don't want to become immobile. I don't want to be soiling myself. I don't want to have to live in an assisted living facility. And and I I really do want to do one thing before we end that, and that is to talk a little bit more about loneliness.
0: Yeah, let's do that.
1: Because the thing that I found interesting about loneliness was, as I read this book, I felt very grateful that I am not lonely. Mm -hmm. I'm a very solitary person, as you know. You know me quite well. Mm -hmm. I'm very solitary, and I like my solitude but i'm not lonely and that the only time in my life i really felt lonely two times was when i was a little kid and i was so isolated from the rest of the world which is why probably why i went out and had to be part of a bigger world and the other time was in the grimmest parts of a marriage mm. where it was becoming very destructive she was becoming destructive to me and that was, that's about really the only times in my lives that I really felt all, there's one other time up in the mountains of Papua New Guinea. And we couldn't, the only way if you could get out of this place was by a small airplane. That's how isolated it was. And I used to sit down on the grass and thinking, this is what loneliness is. Wow. Because there were no other people around uh, or? Yeah, but the because there was no way out. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Well, it's- You know, there was no family, there was nothing familiar, it was was in the middle of culture shock, and um, only Americans among the Europeans there, uh, living with a very almost primitive, I hate that word, but primitive culture, uh, just felt very alone, very other.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up loneliness. I mean, I... it You know, the book did make me think about, for example, my mother. And my mother lives alone. And she lives in a big house, kind of like Olive. You know, she's not... I mean, my mother is not like Olive at all in any way, but... But this this stuff about the loneliness, particularly when she moves into the assisted living community at the end, this kind of tiny apartment, there's this sadness that develops around the fact that her apartment faces north and she doesn't get any direct sunlight. I mean, you can-, I can again,
1: again, the light, right?
0: <laughs> the light, yeah. But like, you know, you do feel bad for her because you think, wow, she really is probably like a lonely- person, even, even that poet chapter, you know, this idea of loneliness. I mean, loneliness is a theme of the book. Yep, um, for sure. But I mean, A, I'm glad you don't feel lonely. I don't want anyone to feel lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I guess like the thing, the reason I brought up my mother was because it's like, you know, do you, does the book also make people who read it think differently about their aging parents or the other uh, people or the other people in their life who are aging right and how we care for those people and surround them with love and but not in a way that suffocates them because i think some people don't want to be like they you know you're you live a largely uh you live a life of a lot of solitude but your daughter is also nearby and you mm-hmm have this relationship with your brother, like you zoom every week with your brother. Right. Am I, am I correct about that? So you've got these like relationships, right? I miss so much. Our, I'm so I was thinking as I was getting ready for the call today, how sad I am about, you know, we had these lovely salons over winter recess where you're me, frozen, Paul. Uh oh. Am I still frozen? Am I still frozen?
1: The last I heard was you were missing something. Now you're back.
0: Okay. Sorry. Um, okay. I was thinking as I was preparing for this, that I'm, I'm really quite sad that we were having these lovely salons at your apartment, uh, in the December, January time period with some of our other Uh friends and I miss just being able to come over and be in your presence, you know, or just be with our, be with like our book family, you know, our, our little community of people where we sat around and talked about books and then went out to dinner and then drank and, you know, had like a lovely time. Um,
1: And, and, and zoom is a, it's better than nothing, but it's just not the same, right? It's just, there's really something very substantial missing uh, there, isn't there?
0: I think so. I mean, I think that it, it it does good enough to be able to have a conversation, yeah. And but you don't feel the human presence in the same way.
1: Well, and that reminds me, I would love to have you and our our small group come sit together and watch. I can watch it for the fourth time. The Oprah book club discussion about Olive again.
0: Yeah. When it, uh, when we're finally able to do it.
1: Yep. And we're not having to worry about particles in the air and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about loneliness and, um, you were talking about, um, you know, aging parents and aging friends, um, and I think what was interesting for me is that my parents' generation, their their mantra was, we don't want to be any bother to anyone. And I think a lot of that is falling away. And I think this book points out that you're not really being a bother, you know, that it's it's part of living. One of the things my mother said is she was in her last days, and she said it probably for a good year plus before she died, she said, you know. I read in a book somewhere that living is part of dying. And she said, I want to do it well.
0: Mm. So she lived a full life, your mother.
1: Yeah. And she was talking, you know, that's the kind of wisdom. I think that Strout has brought up, you know, a lot, little words like that, words of wisdom. This the one you talked about before, you know, living with, living with the mystery and, and um, doing so with as much grace as possible. Yeah. And we're being really tested with that right now, aren't we in this this surreal life we live as a as a world, you know, not being able to contact each other and trying to do it with some grace. Or
0: not doing it with grace. I mean, I think one of the things uh, that I point. find really quite troubling about the whole situation is just the fact that people seem so unbothered By other people's potential risk, you know, I mean up to and including Well, I mean it starts at the top, you know, the 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 person in charge of the country presently just does not care about anybody's life you know and to a large extent without going on to a diatribe about politics I mean including his own You know, what I find quite stunning about the president right now is that, you know, he's willing actually to risk his own life. These rallies this weekend in South Dakota and on the National Mall, I mean... Not only his
1: life, but a lot of other lives.
0: Yeah, but but that's what I'm saying is I'm like, Uh, you know,
1: it's it's so...
0: It so shows such a lack of human relationship, like... Speaking of loneliness, I mean, I think the biggest problem that the president of this country has currently is that he's probably one of the loneliest people that I've ever, this was long before he was president. I think he's just a lonely person. He doesn't have any good relationships in his life.
1: In the loneliest office of the world. I mean, every every president you talk to, they say, It's the loneliest job there is. Barack Obama said it. Truman said it. You know, all said it's just really lonely.
0: You know, there's only a handful of people, literally, four dozen people who've ever experienced that position in the entire, and it's just got so, to go into that position without loving yourself and without loving and clearly without loving other people, like, you know, he's a narcissist and an egoist and we understand that, but he doesn't even love himself enough to be like, let me put on a mask. Right. It's okay to do something, uh-huh. but just put on, I don't know. I just, yeah. I think we've got a really, it, it's a real crisis. Uh, on well, I'm
1: glad you brought that up about, and without grace, I, I appreciated you uh, pushing back on that a little bit, you know, there's a lot of th- things happening that are not being done gracefully. Yeah. Uh, the people who, you know, it's like the anti-vaxxers or the, or the people who say, "No, my my right to cough on you is, you know, inviolable." That's that's, you know. So what if you die? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it it's it's a real troubling development in the ethics of of the world really as we get people who are doing these signs of things and being so, uh, outspoken and clear about it.
0: I don't think it's, I don't think it's a troubling development in the ethics of the world. I think it's a troubling reminder that we haven't unlearned the lessons of the past. I mean, global pandemic and just the way that we've spread disease around the world in general, as a species and the history of that just makes me think like, like I'm thinking about, you know, we, we came to this country, for example, and one of our tactics was biological warfare, you know, giving smallpox, giving smallpox blankets to the natives.
1: Was was that, was that done intentionally? Yes. I didn't realize, I didn't know that.
0: So we've had biological warfare. I
1: thought it was sort of like an unintended consequence that happened.
0: No, I think it was pretty intentional. Oh, well, that's really so sad. so you think about like I don't without getting too much into it, like sometimes what I'm thinking about is like, oh, this pandemic is just a way of recreating colonization because so many of the people who are being impacted uh, disproportionately by the virus are people who are poor people of color and as as this goes around the world you know it's going to be places that are you know largely without great economies it's not going to you know the the large economies of the world the develop the quote-unquote developed countries of the world will eventually emerge from this right what's going to happen to all these places that are And all these people who are not you know i just i don't know i don't know well
1: take it to a micro level even if you take a look at the country of the u.s how many communities are going to be just scoured to nothingness you know i'm thinking about the midwest and the great plains those areas are not going to be unscathed when this is all over with
0: no and they in fact you know i mean we're just starting to enter into that phase of the pandemic i mean it's just beginning so, I agree with you. Areas that were already ravished from economic deprivation in this country of the pa- of the past forty years are just going to be even more ravished. They don't have the hospital space, <coughs> any of the stuff. So, I don't know. It's really quite tragic.
1: I want to change topics on you before we end because probably yeah. getting near the end. Um, yeah, and that is. I'm intrigued by this idea of the rhizomatic the rhizome I've been, it's been a wonderful a visual in my mind and in my head and in my eyes. so so now you've done this is the second one right and what do you be, what are you learning i'm i'm i know i'm pushing you because it's a little early to start doing some deep breathing but i am wondering what what you're learning about the rhizome and the that lovely visual of the, the root system under the ground as you've gone with, you've talked with Caitlin last week and you're talking to me today. You went from a nonfiction to a fiction.
0: Well, um, I don't know what I'm learning yet, but what I can tell you is that I feel invigorated and excited about the possibilities that are going to come
1: out of it because the surprises?
0: The surprises, right? Like, I mean, this book, for, well, both books, you know, I don't know. I mean, I had Adrian Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, but I hadn't read it. Uh, this book, I don't know that I would have read it. Um, and i I'm just curious about the surprises that are going to come up, the books that people are going to choose. I'm really interested in people's... Just why do they read? How do they read? What are they doing? I really am just fascinated by that. And now, like just today, so we're going to see what happens. So just today I emailed, like you know how I ask each of you to send me the names of three people, right? So I just emailed Caitlin's first person on the list today to invite them to the podcast. They haven't responded yet, but... But I'm just, I'm excited about the people I'm going to meet that I don't, and what are they going to, what are we going to read? Like Caitlin, well, yeah, we'll see which one of Caitlin's people takes the bait um, and decides to come (laughs) on. I mean, I hope the first person, but I'm just, I'm excited. And then like, I was, I just want to be able to see long-term, like how you, how we'll be able to connect books together in ways that we didn't really think about
1: well and that's i'm glad you said that because that's as you were talking and was coming to me like this was the last book in the world i wanted to read in general didn't care for it that much and yet it had to be discussed you know it's like i have had to discuss it with somebody like paul who can just really dig into this and say why don't we just take this book and throw it across the room and say i don't want to read this damn book you know, and yet in the time we've spent together here, we've seen why there's something going on here that we just can't dismiss it and can't dismiss all of, can't dismiss these people. There's something powerful going on here. It's not the greatest structure. It's not the structure I would have preferred her to do this book in, but there's still something very powerful going on. And, uh, you know, you gave me permission with that at the beginning when you said it can be a book you don't like or you having trouble with. So I took you up on that idea.
0: Well, and I think we've had this experience time and again. I mean, I know I have where I always leave a discussion of a book. Almost always. I almost always leave a discussion of a book much more appreciative of the book than if I had just read it and not thought about it. When I just read a book and I don't go back through my notes and I just, you know, sometimes a book will blow me away and that's fine. But a lot of times if you don't talk about the book, you don't really think in depth about what it is that the book is doing. And I'm interested in other people's experiences with these texts. You know, I'm so thankful that you made me read this book because I really don't think I would have ever read it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it is despite, like you said, some of the oddities of the book. I'm leaving this conversation tonight feeling I have so many more things to think about. I will contemplate some of this stuff. It's not a terrible book, right? Like, it's not the worst book that we've ever read. At least right. it's not for me.
1: I don't I think even consider it a bad book anymore.
0: I don't either. At, I think at, at first,
1: I thought it was a bad book. I just thought, Whoa. especially the first olive, I thought, oh, this is... what. Well, nah. <laughs> But it would it wouldn't let me go. What is it about a book that won't, won't let you go? You know it's, it's still there in the background.
0: When you say you're interested in the idea of the rhizomatic, what are you like how is that helping
1: you? I was just kind of curious as to see I, I'm going to be asking this question on ongoing as we go through mm-hmm. the future and just interested in this. I hope you're going to continue to help us as participants and listeners. Uh, you're going to show by, you're going to show and show us rather than tell us, you know, this is what happened in this conversation and that. So I'm hoping you'll do some reflection upon the process of the rhizomatic reader as we go along, as you go along in this journey.
0: Yeah, I think I will. I've already, I've already thought, you know, as I've gone through these first two episodes of like, you know, I might have to do some like, Mini episodes where I talk about like, okay,
1: here are some things. Oh, I like about, that or, idea. You know, Many, like, that's a great idea.
0: Or kind of like you know, Krista Tippett does these. Um, is it Krista Tippett? I don't know if it's her. Or if it's another podcast, there's another podcast where they do. Oh no, it's not Krista Tippett. I I was on this podcast a year ago called Research in Action. And one of the things that they do on that podcast is they actually do these kind of like mini outtakes or I don't know what they call them exactly. But I do think in the future as I start to get more and more material, what I might do is pull like a five-minute thing, right, and put it out and just be like, ah. oh, here's, here's something, you know, that we should be thinking about. I and, like that a
1: lot. I like that a lot.
0: And yeah. here's just a snippet of conversation. Think about this issue. And then that can help to like push people back to that episode. Ultimately what I want to have happen is of course, I want to build this map, this visual mapping of like, here are the pathways to that. These people are connected. Here are the books that are connected through these pathways. If you liked this book, you what I really want to do, but this is going to take a long time is I want to be like, Oh, you read Elizabeth Strout, you know, maybe you want to read and I don't know what the book will be, but it would, it would be like books that people would not read together
1: hmm.
0: that I would be like, Oh, read that and that together and see how wow. those two books talk to each other. Yeah. Right? Cause you wouldn't the put them together, but they actually talk to each other in a really profound way. That's what I want to have happen ultimately.
1: Well, and you're bringing up to my mind, you know, we talked, we started out this conversation talking about my reading life and you helping me see in this last bits of conversation that one of the things I wanted to do in my new reading life, my real reading life in retirement was not to just be consuming things, but to be digging in and talking to other people about them. You know, not just, being the consumer that we are in America and, you know read that book put that on the shelf get another book start again read again read again you know it's like this consumerism was like no there's no, there are nuggets here are we going to are we going to just let them fall by the wayside or are we going to go in and dig in and I, I just feel like it's been such a privilege to talk about olive with you and how complex she is and all these characters and how complex they are uh, so it's just you know it so the, you know this is a good example of how rich my life is now of having this reading life which is not just a reading life it's a, it's analysis it's thinking it's reflection it's having a salon a discussion having this conversation with you uh and i hope i'm hoping that that more of the world will be doing some of this stuff when they have a little bit more time right now
0: I hope so too. Do you feel like you're do you feel like you've accomplished what you wanted to accomplish thus far in your retirement reading life about really doing the analyzing and diving in differently not just consuming but thinking and talking.
1: Good question. I think I have and I think that and what I've done um I've gotten even more disciplined about it um and I'm giving up the book club here. The, the one now, at your
0: apartment complex or a different one?
1: Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Because I now have like three or four major projects that I'm looking into, mm-hmm. and I want to I want to stay focused. I mean, I really was. It was grievous for me to have to let James Baldwin go away. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so now I've I've got this in my in my diary. You know, this, this is where my focus is right now. And yes, I will let things, you know, slide in if it's important. Um, but uh, I think it's even it's becoming even more and more focused in a good way. And it's been such a, a gift from you to me to dig into olive because now I feel like I can take all my olive materials and put them aside and say, yes, I think I've done enough with olive now. But Olive's never going to go away. She's always going to be a part of me—not Olive, not just Olive, but all those characters and the people. And someday you're going to be able to come over, and we're going to watch Oprah and her group in Maine. She I actually can't... goes.
0: Oh, she, she goes, to goes, goes to
1: Maine. She okay. goes to Maine to a particular scene in the book—a place that's in the book—and there are pictures of the leaves and the trees and the and the light. Uh, I can't wait for that day. I just so that's, that. that's 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 our, our, our we can celebrate when we we get out of quarantine or whatever we call this thing.
0: Yeah, let's hope it's soon.
1: I really do hope it's soon. So thank you very much, Paul. This has been thank a real you. joy. Thank you. I really appreciate it.